Chapter 12. Phyrexia. The winter dust storm boiled out of the south, a major Sirocco that reached from horizon to horizon and climbed almost to the zenith of the sky. It was a grandfather storm, one that the old people spoke of, a storm that bottled the sun with its shadow. The storm breathed dust-laden winds capable of flaying the living flesh from those caught in the open. Along its leading edge, great tornadoes spawned and danced, only to be sucked back within the advancing wall of churning black dust. The storm overtook the lumbering form of the Mokfawa and swallowed it whole, disturbing neither the storm nor the dragon engine. The Mokfawa continued to roll forward, unfazed by the swirling winds and pounding sand that assailed it. Though one could no longer see across the width of the creature's body, the engine plodded forward with the resolute and absolute confidence of a machine. Mishra and Ashad huddled in a cramped space beneath the creature's back plates. The dragon engine had not been designed to carry passengers within, but there was a low-roofed hollow along the beast's spine, and the Rocky and his apprentice crouched there, listening to the sand rasp against the metal flesh around them. How can it see where it is going? shouted Ashot over the clatter of blowing sand. It does not need to see, replied Mishra. It knows, as surely as I know, what direction it needs to go. It seeks out the secret heart of the Thran. I can feel Koilos's call, and because the machine responds to me, so too can it feel the pull, like a raptor returning to the same nest with each passing season. Ashnot stared at the stocky man huddled next to her. Misha's tendency to cloak his words in illusions and mythicism bothered her. Did he truly believe what he said, or was it all verbal play to cover the fact that he did not know? Ashnot wanted to believe the former, because otherwise, they were charging blindly through a grandfather storm, navigated only by a vague feeling in Misha's heart. It was in the winter of the year of the Corlinda Massacre, the year the warlord of Crute perished at the hands of the young Kadir, that Misha and Ashnot set up for Koilos, the secret heart of the Thran. They told no one among the Sawari of their plans or their destination, not even Hajar, and particularly not the Kadir. The idea that the tribe's Raki was seeking out the secret heart of the Thran once more would not have been a comforting thought to the leader of the Falaji. The retreat from Corlinda had been harrowing, and one of every five men who entered Corlys returned to Falaji lands. The survivors traveled by night, cowering in mountain passes, constantly seeking places to hide the huge Mokfawa from the pursuing ornithopters. The Kadir at first wanted to turn around and launch an immediate counterattack. Cooler heads, and the fact that they were a mere fraction of their initial numbers, convinced him to withdraw and take comfort in the apparent death of the warlord. Ultimately, the Kadir blamed his Raki for the ambush. Misha should have known that his talented and treacherous brother was among the enemy. Misha should have told the Kadir immediately upon discovering that fact. Misha should have concentrated on protecting him, the Kadir, instead of giving commands to his dragon engine during the attack. And of course, Ashna thought ironically, Misha was at fault for coming out of this debacle more popular among the Falaji than ever. The other tribal chieftains made sure the Raki was alright and asked about the health of the Kadir as a secondary matter. While the Kadir had slain the ancient warlord, it was Misha and his engine who were credited with saving those who made it back to the Falaji lands. No one blamed Misha for the ambush, save the Kadir, but the chieftain made his complaints well known to anyone who was nearby, and no one would disagree with the corpulent young man. The Kadir had other complaints upon their return. Misha should have found more machines by now similar to his Mokfawa. A single dragon engine was too big a target and too vulnerable. He reminded Misha of the difficulties they had experienced at Zigon. If the Yodians could field dozens of their machines, the Kadir should be able to do the same. Of course, no one doubted Misha's loyalty, the Kadir said, or his talent. Though when mentioning them, the young chieftain managed to bring them both into doubt. It had been many years since the Raki first conjured the Mokfawa, and now his people needed more. There were whispers which the Kadir assured Misha was completely disbelieved by anyone who truly counted, that the Raki was afraid of his brother's flying machines and his brother's power. 
Ashton had watched the entire dressing down, silent as a woman among the Falaji was expected to be. After the Kadir had dismissed them, she snarled quietly to Mishra. But what have you done for me lately? Mishra merely returned to his own tent and began to issue orders. They needed to locate more finds of Old One artifacts, preferably ones that were nearly operational. Scouts were sent out with orders describing what to look for. Within the month, they returned with news of a large device located near the banks of the Marjan River. The Kadir, busy reconfirming his power over the other tribes, allowed his Raki and the Raki's woman to investigate. The site was large, and the remains were generally complete. The machine was evidently some sort of transport used by the Thran to haul unknown equipment. It appeared to be a great wagon or wain, and had been overturned in whatever accident that had claimed it. Rust blossomed along both sides of its skeleton, and its spoked wheels were twisted and shattered. The wire laden framework that held the power crystals was missing, if it had existed at all. Misha shook his head. It would require time and effort to put this monstrosity back together, and even then, it would be but a fraction of the grandeur of the Mokfawa. The Gadir would not be pleased. The morning after surveying the find, Misha left Hajar in charge of the excavation and departed, taking both Dragon Engine and Ashnod with him. They headed east and traveled night and day, the Dragon Engine a tireless mount. They slipped within the creature's metal carapace and now hid there while the great storm blossomed out of the southern horizon. They were trapped within the beast's body for ten days and nights while the storm whirled around them. They had sufficient supplies and light, but the protected howl was barely comfortable for one and tight for two. To pass the time, Misha told Ashnod the story of his first visit to Koilus. He also took the opportunity to inform her how she might better conduct herself among the Falaji. Soon, Ashnod was willing to consider braving the storms outside to avoid listening further to Misha point out her foibles, great and small. I did nothing wrong, she finally said in frustration on the tenth day of the storm, after Misha mentioned, for the fifth time that day, a recent incident in the Kadir's camp. The warrior you struck down would disagree, replied Misha. He said I thought like a man, she said, exacerbated. It is an old desert saying, replied Misha. It is meant to be a compliment. Trust me, said Ashad. It isn't. You did not need to cripple him, said Misha sternly. Ashad forcefully placed a hand against Misha's broad chest. Would you prefer if I said I turned my staff on him because he insulted my gentle feminine ears with lewd and guttural suggestions? She asked. Because he did that too. Misha did not respond immediately. Instead, he pointed to the outer hull and said, Listen. Ashnod paused. I don't hear anything. Exactly, said Misha. I think we have passed through the storm at last. Check outside. Ashnod blinked at the man. And if this is only a momentary lull in the wind, what happens if they kick up again while I'm outside? Misha leaned against the inner wall. You're the apprentice. That means if a task is dangerous or unpleasant, it is your job. Muttering, Ashnod inched toward the access plates and carefully peeled them back and peered outside. There was a wall of blackness along the north, but the sky above was bright blue, and the sands had already settled in the wake of the great storm. It's over, said Misha, following her out of their hiding place within the mechanical beast. We can ride on the outside for a while. And not a moment too soon, muttered Ashnod, not caring if Misha had heard her or not. In the wake of the storm, they saw no other living thing. The desert had been wiped clean, and old rock formations had been buried as new ones were exposed. At last, another week of travel, they reached the canyon of Koilos. The site was untouched by the storm, and apparently undisturbed since Mishra was last there. The bleached bones of the rock were still scattered in front of the cave entrance, mixed with the wreckage of other ancient Thran machines. As they moved through the valley, Mishra grew quiet and somber, 
Ashot thought the man was reliving old memories, some apparently painful. They pawed through the wreckage and the ruins immediately around the cavern's mouth, but after several days' work, the two had come up with nothing that could be immediately pressed into the Kadir's service. Those metal spires might have been useful once, said Ashnod that evening, but your brother definitely did a number on them when that machine exploded. They weren't in the best condition before, and now they're little more than scrap. In the firelight, Misha flinched just a bit at the mention of his brother. Ashnod had discovered that the subject of Urza was off-limits around the younger brother, a fact that made her all the more curious about the relationship. Misha did not respond to her comment, and Ashnod saw him staring at the rock bones at the base of the plateau and the cavern they partially concealed. Whatever answer was at Koilos lay within the caverns. That night, Misha slept badly and awoke screaming. Ashnod calmed him as best as she was able. I dreamed of the wind, of a great dark wind, was all he said. The night sweat evaporate in the still air. It swept around me. It spoke to me, and it carried horrible secrets it wanted to tell me. It will be all right, murmured Ashton. It's just a dream. Dreams are not important. They are to me, said Misha, staring into the darkness. In the morning, they entered the caverns. The long corridor had been brightly lit once, Misha had said, but it was now dark again, and they brought oil lamps with them. Ashton ran a hand over the inner walls of the tunnel. There were bricks there, but she could not see the joints. They passed the wreckage of the Suchi guardians. Misha picked up one blackened, narrow-headed skull and smashed it against the wall. It cracked like a walnut, but instead of meat inside, there was a power stone, an eye of the old ones. It was slightly chipped, but still held the fire of the Thran energies. He grunted approval, and they continued. They reached an interminable set of stairs and came at last to the great cavern, the lair of the Thran machines. It was bathed in a flickering light of inconstant crystalline plates along the ceiling. The centermost machine was made up of a great series of plates and mirrors surrounding an empty spot. Misha placed the stone from the Suchi's head in the void of the machine. Immediately, there came a low humming, a throbbing that seemed to issue from the walls itself. The flickering stopped, and the entire cavern was bathed in a soft light. How did he know to do that? asked Ashnod. I just knew, replied Misha. He sounded as if they were a thousand miles away. The Raki shrugged, apparently shaken off an old memory. Ashnod examined the bank of glyphs and lights before the great machine set into a podium that looked like a huge open-faced book. She did not touch the glyphs, but studied each in turn. Somewhere among the signs was a mechanism that opened other doors, doors that had held the mechanical humanoids whose remains littered the entrance. If they could find them, she and Misha reasoned, they could bring back new wonders for the Kadir. Working wonders. After a short while, Misha asked, Well? Ashnod shook her head. The glyphs were simple geometric shapes and could be labels, instructions, or dire warnings. They provided no clues as the purpose of the machines. She pointed, This one might be the symbol of a doorway. Misha looked over her shoulder and assented. Press it, he said. Is this something else you just know? asked Ashnod. Misha frowned. I'm guessing as much as you, but press it anyway. It feels like the right thing to do. Ashnod brushed the glyph with her long fingertips, and somewhere in the depths of the mountain, there was a low chime more felt than heard. Something deep within the Thram machine had engaged, and Ashnod hoped it was connected with other working mechanisms. She held her breath. A light appeared in the air to their right. First a moat, hanging in space. It soon expanded, twisting the air around it, until it formed a thin glowing disc, positioned perpendicular to the ground, hanging unsupported. Slowly, Ashnod walked around it. It seemed as thin as the Kadir's temper, and had a soft, almost enticing radiance to it. Along the surface of the disc, Ashnod could almost see a set of scribed hairlines 
form in the shape of a child star. Ashan looked at Nishra, but he did nothing. The disc grew until it was twice the size of a man. Ashan leaned her black thunderwood staff forward and pressed its butt against the disc. The light offered no resistance, nor did it dissipate at the touch. She leaned forward, and the staff passed easily through the disc. Ashan withdrew the staff. The immersed end seemed unharmed. Ashad looked at Mishra again. We found our doorway, said Mishra calmly. Who goes in first? asked Ashnod. Mishra looked at her. After a moment, she nodded. Right, she said. If it's dangerous or unpleasant, it's the apprentice's job. Ashnod stepped through the glowing disc. The light surrounded her and saturated her. For a moment, she thought she heard, faintly, the voice of an old woman shouting. But then, that passed as well, and she was in another world. The first thing that she was aware of was the heat. Not the desert heat, dry and comforting, but a wet, damp heat she had not felt since the swamps of Almaz. It settled on her like a blanket. Now she felt the smell, a pungent scent of rotten decay. No, there was more to it than that, she thought. It smelled of oil and chemicals, too. It smelled of goblin powder, of fire, of steel. For a moment, she thought she was back at Corlinda, fleeing as the bombs dropped around them. There were colors, a riot of jungle plants surrounded her, all in bloom, bright splotches against a sea of dark green leaves and vines. But the colors were wrong. They were too hard, too bright, too alien, and they had a metallic sheen to them. And the vines, they were uniform, more like cables than any natural thing. She touched one of the flowers and pulled her hand away quickly. Whatever juice the bloom was leaking was slightly caustic and stung her skin. A dragonfly settled on the flower, but on closer inspection, Ashnot saw it was not truly an insect, but rather a tiny machine made of silver wire and gold plates. She reached out to grab it, but the dragonfly was gone in a wink, darting deeper into the jungle. She turned around. Misha was stepping through the radiant disc, emerging like a swimmer from the sea. Yes, he said. It is just as I remembered it. You've been here before? asked Ashnod. Only in dreams, replied Misha. Indeed, there was a distracted dreamlike quality in the way he spoke. Ashnod gripped her staff more tightly and looked up at the sky. It was overcast and glowed with a reddish hue like hot coals under a blanket of snow. Phyrexia, Misha said at last. Ashan looked at him and said, The dreams again? Misha nodded absentmindedly. Words carried on the black winds, he said. This place is called Phyrexia. He stared into the middle distance, trying to get his bearings. That way, he said at last. I think the ground slopes down to a pond or something. Actually, it sloped down to a lake, a large black mirror covered with rainbow patterns of oil. Several large machines, kin to the Mokfawa back in Koilos, waded through its oily expanse, dredging other pieces of metal from the lake's shallow floor. There were four of them, Ashot saw. You stay here, said Mitra. Keep your staff ready. What are you doing? asked Ashnod. Mitra blinked at her. I'm going to try to control them, as I controlled our dragon engine. He spoke as if the answer to her question was obvious. And if they don't want to be controlled? asked Ashnod. That's why you have to keep your staff ready, returned Mishra. Be prepared to run. Ashan waited nervously as Misha crept forward. One of the dragon engines, the smallest, saw him first and let out a low, bleeding cry. The other three looked up at once. All four converged on Mishra, the smallest reaching him first. Ashan held her breath as the small metallic dragon leaned forward toward the newcomer, sniffing him as a dog would a stranger. Misha stood calmly as if being sniffed by engines of mass destruction was a common occurrence. Then the dragon engine dropped on its haunches and laid its head against the ground. The other three did the same. Ashnod could see these were not identical to the Mokfawa she knew. 
Their heads were blunter, shaped more like shovels, and their hides were duller than the brass monster they had left behind. Misha waited for Ashot to come ahead, and she stepped into the clearing by the lake, her staff still at the ready. Misha nodded grimly. It's not the stone, he said. I thought it was my power son that controlled them, but it's not. It's me. I can think what I want them to do, and they will do it. He seemed more puzzled than pleased by the discovery. Good, said Ashad, wondering for a moment exactly how good it was. But these seem large to take back through the portal. Can you master something smaller? There was a gong in the distance, the deep chiming of an iron bell. The dragon engines looked up and almost bolted back into the oily lake. The bell tolled again, this time close, and the dragon engines started to waver, caught between their obedience to Mishra and their fear of whatever was approaching. The bell tolled a third time, and Ashok can now hear the twisting, rending noise of metallic vegetation being ripped from its roots. The three larger engines panicked and splashed back into the lake. The smaller one remained, but whined like an engine caught between gears. Part of the forest to their left disappeared, and a true giant lumbered forward. It was shaped like a land-going ship, set on treads, with a great maw set into its prow. Within the maw were spinning sets of teeth, like great scythes. They ripped through the plants and trees of the jungle with ease. When it struck a particularly large tree, the shattered bits of trunk made the booming bell-like noise, and standing above the mouth on a platform was a tall demonic figure. It seemed to be made of metal as well, and shards of dark bone erupted from its leathery skin. It wore armor that seemed almost a part of it. A rictus grin of exposed skin gleamed along its fleshless face. A pair of horns nestled among a tangle of swaying, worm-like tendrils that sprang from its head and swept backward like banners made of human skin. Run! shouted Misha, but Ashan needed no encouragement. She followed the rock key back up the hill toward the glowing disc that led to safety. The vegetation tore her robes as she ran, as if it were trying to ensnare her to hold her in thrall for the dark machine that pursued them. Something tore a long gash along one arm, and a flower fluttered in her face, nearly blinding her with its acid. She looked back only once to see that the smallest of the dragon engine had not fled back to the lake, but was standing, bleeding plaintively. The demon machine with its spinning scythes was almost on top of it. The machine did not slow down as it ran the smaller creature. The dragon engine disappeared in a flurry of silver wire and metal plates. Ashnot turned around and ran faster. Behind them, the machine in turn and was pursuing them up the hill. Misha was waiting at the portal, but would not go through without her. She dived into the portal head first. Part of her mind noted that they had not truly established the disc led back to the caverns, but, she thought wryly, anywhere they landed would have less terror than the Phyrexian beast that followed them. She sprawled across the cold stone floor of the chamber, her staff skittering ahead of her and slamming against the far wall. She turned in place and saw Misha nimbly dash through the disc as well. He turned to the bookshape embankment, and his hands hesitated over the collection of glyphs. He touched one, and nothing happened. Ashot shouted, and Misha reached out to grab the power crystal from its cradle among the mirrors. He pulled it from its socket and cursed as the warm crystal burned his flesh. The stone that could power the Suchi was insufficient to maintain the great Thran machine and was overloaded with power. Misha dropped the smoking stone, and it smashed against the floor in a hundred shards. The golden disc winked out of sight. Ashnot held a hand to her chest and felt her heart thundering against her ribcage. For the first time, she considered the idea that the Mokfawa might have other masters in addition to Mishra, and that those masters might object to trespassers. To Mishra, she said, The creature in the machine, you knew what it was? Mishra nodded, gasping for air. Ashnot said, From your dreams? Mishra nodded again. Remind me to pay more attention to dreams, Ashnot muttered quietly half to herself. Misha shook his head and blew on his burned fingers. We've got what we came for. Come along now. Without the Suchi's power stone in its cradle, 
the light began to flicker again. Misha headed for the mouth of the cavern at a rapid clip. Confused? Ashnot followed. She caught up with him at the entranceway. What do you mean? She said. We've got what we came for? We had to leave everything behind and slam the door behind us to avoid that... that machine demon. Misha held up a hand. Shush. Watch. There was a tremor that ran up the length of the canyon, and Ashnot saw one of the surviving buildings along the valley floor cave in on itself. Then, near the cavern entrance, the ground erupted. A shovel-headed dragon's head launched from the sand like an arrow, trailing its serpentine neck behind it. There was another eruption, and another dragon's head, and then a third. The three engines from the lake transported from there to here. All three clawed their way from the sand and half-slithered, half-rolled toward the cavern entrance. They knelt before Mishra, recognizing him as their new master. Impressive, said Ashad. So what do we do now? Mishra smiled. It was an unpleasant grimace, but it was the first smile Ashnod had seen from him since they entered the canyon. Now, he said thoughtfully, as if turning over possibilities in his mind. He looked at the dragon engines and said, Now we call another peace conference. Back in the cavern, there was a flicker of light and the golden portal opened again. This time, it could only manage to create a disc a few inches in circumference, a leathery hand, its flesh dotted with shards of dark metal bone, reached through the small portal and clawed at the air. Once, twice, a third time, it scrabbled about, looking for something solid to grab hold of. Then, the lights of the portal wavered again, and the hand pulled quickly back, withdrawing seconds before the portal closed entirely, and everything was quiet in the caverns of Koilos for another few years.